six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Good morning, everyone. Conley here with the Science Night episode. Yep, Science Night. You heard right. In the morning. And uh, we are here with uh, Dr. Sean Dram, uh, all the way from Australia, hanging out with us this morning. And we're going to be talking about the mystery, the construction. We're going to be talking about a little bit of everything involving, um, I mean, Stonehenge, right? Stonehenge. Stonehenge. <laughs> now there's Bloody a Stonehenge. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm excited about this. Stonehenge. Well, I mean, how do you put your finger on what the purpose of somebody going out there or something going out there and putting these rocks that have defied, like, you know, what time itself, it seems like. Right. This is I want to do the show pretty bad for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, I I like I'm no expert on Stonehenge and I've only recently uh, ever like stopped to take a little minute and and read anything about it and learn anything about it. But it is one, it's one of those things that's like the reason, the main reason I'll be honest, Conley, you're kind of a foil for this episode. You're kind of the straight man. Cause I still irritates me that we've we've done a couple of shows where you're you're really interested in some of these ancient things. And um, (laughs) like, you know, we did a whole show on, on the, uh, what were those climate anomalies at the end of the ice age? Yeah. Uh, Younger Dryas. The younger Dryas and all that, and the, the yeah. possibility there's this super popular uh, nut that's out there. It's got his own Netflix series. Who's you know? He wrote convinced. me. He, he he wrote in his book to me, and I've had conversations with him. Wait, wait, wait! But I'm talking. I'm not sure if we're talking about the same person. It'd be amazing if we are. He has the but same. Got, he has a Netflix yeah. series now. Yeah. Okay. And Graham he's been Hancock. on Joe Rogan. He's been on Joe Rogan. Graham Hancock. Yeah, that must be him. I love Graham Hancock. We have had email conversations back and that's forth. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, and and he sent me his book and a, wrote in it. That's amazing. So he's convinced that there was a uh, pre-Mesopotamian you know, Mesopotamian civilization based on basically no evidence. I love Graham Hancock. And, I, and my complaint about this, which we talked about in other shows, is that like people, for some reason, are not happy enough with the amazing things that real archaeologists discover, right? And it makes me like if you just took a moment and go and look at the stuff that has been found in the last twenty years about just about any archaeological thing you want to talk about, you will be blown away. But yeah. if you're if you're only going to be happy with a supernatural or UFO type explanation, then I'm afraid this show will suck for you. But I picked Stonehenge because it's a really good example, right? It's got it's the one that you had in your little book when you were a teenager that was like mysteries of Stonehenge, right? Stonehenge. It was on unsolved mysteries. Oh, it yeah. was on it, you know, it's it's the the thing that cannot be explained, right? Uh, that's am what I, they advertise the right? it as, yeah. 
Am I? Yeah. Am I on the right track here? So <laughs> you're, you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of those type. It's like the pyramids. It's like Easter Island. It's like the Nazca lines, right, where humans couldn't possibly have built it. So it must be made by aliens, right? No, not really. Uh, I don't. Okay. That, that, that's what the History Channel really kind of has soiled that, that exactly. idea. And, exactly. And it's so awful. Gonna, I, right, right. I'm not going to pick on you anymore. I'm going <laughs> to pick on History Channel because they're, yeah. they're really, and the other like cable broadcasting garbage yeah. have really destroyed what could really be um, an exciting topic. Right. And it is. Stonehenge yeah. is super exciting. And another reason why this is cool, and I'm going to make my point eventually, is that, um, you know, if you if you read a book about Stonehenge, and there are a ton out there because, you know, the Brits, mm-hmm. the British people they, in England, they love, the, uh, you know, rightly so. They love this stone monument, right? It's the most amazing thing on that island. Right, archaeologically, it's incredible. They sell a lot of uh, coffee mugs. Yeah, they and rightfully so. <laughs> Every coffee mug on earth should have stone Stonehenge on it because it is an amazing site. Yeah, and the yeah. Brits love it, and so they write tons of books about it. There are a bunch of books about it, but the thing is, if you get a book out of the library, go to the used bookstore, get yourself a book about Stonehenge, and it was published before about two thousand and eight. It's totally out of date now. Yeah. It's one of those things that in the, just in the past, like five years, wow. archaeologists have discovered some stuff that has totally blown the lid open about Stonehenge hmm. such that here, here we go. We're going to we're going to let's dive we're gonna in. Develop, we're going to develop the framework for our show. Okay. What are the questions you can ask about Stonehenge? Right. Why, yeah. who, what, when, how and where? Right. Those are the questions you can ask. Yeah. Uh, all basically any question in the world you can ask with that. Those are, that's pretty much it. Those are the questions <laughs> you can ask. Yeah. And and and, and 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 literally in 2008 or 2005, you would not have known the answer really. Well, you would have known a few uh, of the answers about when, because we've had radiocarbon dating and pretty good radiocarbon dates for some of the structures at Stonehenge for a while now. Mm. So we had, we knew some answers for when, but pretty much all the other questions you wouldn't really have been able to answer very well. And now we have pretty solid answers for all the questions, except for the one t- that is to me the least interesting, mm. which is the least interesting to me being a scientist. Uh, why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Who gives a shit? Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> why? You know, uh, you can make up any answer you want, right? Why they built it. Yeah. It was to yeah. worship the flying spaghetti monster, obviously. Sure. And you yeah. would, you would be yeah. just as right as if you said, oh, it was a burial monument or it was a calendar yeah. or it was, you know, uh, uh, the sun God and the moon God. You know, who, these are questions. That's an, a question that really we may never know the answer to. And so why, why, why even ask it? Well, well, that's funny because that, that's gives way to a playground of speculation between, uh, the non-scientific community, right? People that just love mystery. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's another kind of piece of the reason why I want to bring this whole topic up for Stonehenge, especially because, I want I want people to think about why you care about that why question so much, and why don't you just throw it in the garbage because you're never going to know. 
Um, and and it's the why people, the why question that I think trips people up, because you can still be interested in Stonehenge and all the other all the other questions: who built it, how they built it, what they built it with, where where it was, and and what the like geographic context and what other monuments might have been around, and where the stones come from, how they built it. We know that now. We know, and, and like whether or not it would be easy or hard to build, we kind of know that too. So mm. it's like, that's incredible. And literally, we only know the last five years have blown the lid off of this to where 20 years ago, 30 years ago, certainly 1100 AD, when like the first historical accounts where anybody wrote anything about Stonehenge, yeah. nobody had a clue. Mm. And now, because of scientists and not because of Graham Hancock, or you know, or, or, I'm going to play devil's know, advocate. Well, modern Celtic druids or Wiccans. None of these watched... people would have ever found the answers to these questions. You, and they would have <laughs> never known. We could have never figured it out if we left those people in charge. And instead, archaeologists, who I consider scientists, they consider themselves anthropologists, or some of them do. But I think they're the hardcore archaeologists, arche- uh, you know, scientists of history. And they've got the answers to almost all the questions, and we're going to answer them on this show today. Okay, I'm looking forward to it. In Graham's defense, and and I have read many of his books, and all he simply do is begging the question. But there is a community of uh, science out there. There's a science community that you might be part of, or they may have looked down their nose at you, right, for giving these speculations. Same with the younger Dryas. That I remember Dr. Thomas Schiller used to laugh at me saying it was pseudoscience and now it's being proven. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, yeah, yeah. So there, there is some there's of that a purpose. Science, and I'll, I'll admit that, that there is some like, with really uh, profound and big kinds of theories uh, when they're first proposed, often there is, you know, and there should be too, you know, science is, is self-correcting and, and there's going to be, they're going to, they're going to attack something yeah. that isn't in the mainstream and they're brutal but at the same too. time they're often though they're like none of the stuff all the stuff that i just mentioned the who what when how and where of stonehenge mm-hmm. none of it will be there there's a little bit of controversy they're arguing about certain little details but it's rewriting the the, the history book of stonehenge and it's and in in a hundred years all of that information will still be the same Hmm. All really? those questions, yes, because it's it's like stuff they found in the ground. It's like DNA. It's it's things that are oh yeah, it's DNA minor that stuff that doesn't it, you know, like the little details nobody cares about, right? If I just yeah. told you that wow, they found a few pieces of flint in some holes um, outside of the main stone circle that you see, uh, and some pottery. Uh, pieces and they were probably crushed by rocks and that means there was a stone placed on top of them and we've got pretty good radiocarbon see it gets boring when you get like that to the nitty-gritty yeah but the overall story is remarkable and interesting but the little nitty-gritty details that's the kind of just in you know daily digging stuff that archaeologists do that really is irrefutable it's 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 going to be mountains of little pieces of evidence like that that gets you the answer to these other questions. And, and there are plenty of scientific discoveries that are so kind of ordinary like that, that don't get argued about, that mm. immediately get accepted because they're so obvious. And yeah. that's actually more common than this 
a boogeyman of scientists who look down their nose on new discoveries that people like Graham Hancock, of course, are going to say, oh, they're never going to believe me, just like they never believed, you know, so-and-so whenever they discovered that, you know, something or other wasn't the mainstream. So they're going to they're going to cherry pick those examples of where science had a major find and there were a lot of arguments about it. I'll just say something like, you know, plate tectonics, right? The first person who said the continents moved around got laughed out of the room, right? Yeah. Of course, it's just preposterous. And of course, over time, we developed enough evidence where pff, turns out that's how it works. But there are other examples, you know, where immediately we discovered something and said, wow, this changes everything and we all know it and it's so obvious and it's crazy how stupid we were to not believe this in the first place. And it immediately happens. And so honestly, that's kind of what's going on with Stonehenge. There's so much cool stuff that the story, uh, you know, the answers are coming in and it's a crazy, remarkable story. And the why question's boring and I couldn't care less about it, but we'll even get to the why. We'll end probably yeah, on the why. Because I, I have a, a, not really a why question, but it is kind of a how and it kind of bleeds into other kind of um, yeah, okay. like speculation, speculative, uh, anecdotal right. type science, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so which, which question should we tackle first? Well, first off, I think where is a big one. Yeah. So where did the rocks come from? Yeah. Yeah. So now we got that nailed down pretty well. It's incredible. And I'm saying we like I'm some sort of an archaeologist. So I'm saying <laughs> we because I'm a scientist. But And again, this is one of those things that the, the uh, Wiccan festival people would have never found out. Hmm. So geologists. Well, let's set the landscape. Guy. Yeah. So Salisbury Plain in southern England. Right. And of course, these books about Stonehenge are full of descriptions of England that are, are probably really good if you know England well. And if you don't, it's just a word soup of you know places like Dorchester and, <laughs> and Salisbury and Marlborough that you're like, wait, is that North Carolina? Is that where they make the cigarettes? <laughs> so it's, it's hard to follow some of this stuff. But southern England, the chalk plains, it's this area where there's a bunch of chalk hmm. and Chalk means that, uh, at least nowadays, it's a very basic soil type that it forms. And so it would have been like a natural prairie back mm. when Stonehenge was being built. In the early phases of Stonehenge, it was probably forested. But later on, when the main monument was going up, it was a, a, a natural prairie, a grassland. And so it's and, and it should be said that there's a ton of of standing stone monuments and earthen kind of circles and things like that all over Southern England. And even in places like Scotland, the Orkney islands and in Ireland. So this was not just like a single place where this was the only game in town. And this is the only place where people built stone monuments of any kind. They yeah. were very common during the Neolithic, uh, dur during prehistoric England days. Right. Mm. And Stonehenge just happens to be probably the most remarkable of all those monuments. It's got a lot of weird things about it. It's the only one where they, you know, stack giant stones on top of each other. Um, so it's it's remarkable, but it's not uh, unprecedented. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so that sets up the geography. And there's lots of, like some of the things we're finding out recently, just in the past 20 years, five years, is that 
even in the environment that right around Stonehenge within like the, the uh, you know, three or four miles right up the road, there was a site called Durrington well, uh, Durrington walls, hmm. which was another earthen circle. There may have been a stone or uh, sorry, a wood circle. They called Woodhenge, And there was probably a large village or even city there at the time. It may have been the largest settlement in England at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And it was right next to Stonehenge. So that gets to the kind of who, like who built Stonehenge. Obviously, the people who lived at Durrington Walls, that's where they lived. Yeah. And they built this uh, monument uh, uh, right down the river from where the village was. And hmm. honestly, like Durrington Walls, uh, the fact that it was a large village or even maybe a, a city, that's come from excavations in the last 10 years. Yeah. Uh, right. So, um, brand brand spanking new the discovery of the city of the people who built stonehenge that's mind-blowing how much do we know about like the language of and and the writing because there are carvings on it yeah zero um the 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 language so we we can get some uh, some kind of indirect evidence of the language based on the uh, on the other part of the who question of who Mm -hmm. who built it this gets back to the um, ancient DNA stuff we've been talking about recently. Yeah. yeah. So that and that's another thing that's only come out in the last five to eight years. So let's let's do a quick timeline of just the people who lived in England um, in the last ten thousand years. Wow. So okay. ten thousand years ago, the Western hunter gatherer people. That's that's what we would maybe call them. Uh, remember, if you if you guys can go back and listen to our um, ancient DNA episode, modern Europeans are basically a, a a melting pot, an amalgam of three separate populations genetically of people, and we have evidence of these people from their ancient DNA. So, a burial eight thousand years ago, they can get DNA out of that bone. Couldn't do that eight years ago. Can do it now. Mm. So we know that Europe. 8,000 years ago was mostly hunter-gatherers, and there were two groups, one in the West, one in the East, and they were super genetically different from uh, other people in Eurasia at the time. And they were probably as different from each other uh, as modern Europeans are different from people in Asia today. So you, recognizably human, but you would, if you met them on the street, you go, hey, where are you from? That's how different they were. Wow. Uh, so the Western hunter-gatherer people were there in, in England, and they actually built a few things at the modern site of Stonehenge that probably were just there incidentally and had nothing to do. So the earliest evidence of any archaeological stuff at Stonehenge are, are like four post holes where they put up pine trees in some sort of maybe like a totem pole just hmm. outside of modern Stonehenge. Yeah. Uh, and obviously Stonehenge wasn't there 8,000 BC. And so wow. later on more people came so that was the first first evidence of anybody there and it was already something they built something there we don't know why or what it was exactly but those western hunter gatherer people were around and they and they built something there now around like something like 4500 bc i'm going to be all over the place with my dates as usual um but i wrote some dates down so about 4000 bc 4500 bc farmers came from mainland Europe. And 
their genetic ancestry traces back to the Near East. So there was basically a migration of people from the Near East where farming was invented, wheat farming, cattle domestication, pig domestication. These people moved out of the Middle East into Europe, largely displacing the people, the hunter-gatherers who were there, but in some cases mixing with them genetically. In Europe, or I'm sorry, in England, it looks like there wasn't much genetic mixing. They got there. They would have had to have come by boat. So they brought things like cows on boats to England and started building structures like uh, these earthen circles and, and, and smaller stone circles and things like that. So that, that was the second kind of group of people that moved into England. They got the initial phases of Stonehenge going. The first kind of earthen ring that is there still at the site and maybe even a small stone circle inside of that ring. They were farmers. They probably used the Salisbury Plain to graze their cattle and did some wheat farming and um, maybe did some mixing with the original hunter-gatherers. But in, in, large, uh, in large case, the original hunter-gatherers uh, kind of died out hmm. in England. And, they're, and they're, um, there's, they didn't leave much of a genetic heritage. Later mixing with hunter-gatherers in Europe means that all Europeans, modern Europeans, including you know most Americans, white people, right. <clears throat> have some uh, percentage of those original hunter-gatherer in their genome. It's still there. It got mixed in. But in, in England specifically, there wasn't much mixing that went on. Wow. Okay. Uh, and there's a third group that we'll get to later that's the really new and exciting group that we talked about in our ancient DNA. The other part of the who built Stonehenge, they came much later. They probably brought horses to England. And uh, that was a couple thousand years later. And, and things got really exciting then. And this made and a really remarkable thing about that third pastoral group that came from the Eurasian steppes, you know, north of the, north of the uh, Black Sea, maybe the first steppe invasion of Europe. A really mm. remarkable thing is that when they appear in England, it's around the same time that the big stone monument of Stonehenge was really built. The mm. big stone circle and the big trilithons, those big standing stones where there's stones placed on top of other stones. It was right around the time those people showed up. And I'm not sure if the dating really tells us for sure which group built that huge structure, whether it was the newcomers or whether it was the original agriculturalists. I'm not sure if the, the carbon dating and, and the archaeological evidence really lets us know that at this point. But that's really exciting because there's, there's no doubt, there's no coincidence that the main structure that we know now as Stonehenge turned up and was built at the time of this invasion of people with horses, right. pastoralists, who were doing some very unusual things in, in Europe. Um, and then they came to England. Mm. So that kind of... Is there a disparity in the, the erosion? Food. Like to in show my, to show this gap in time? Like is there yeah, a well, parity so in erosion? The, archaeologists are kind of all over the place in terms of like, you know, some of the older archaeologists were like, oh, these, and they, they, there was some archaeological evidence that a new people showed up around this time. And it was mm. based on like pottery and yeah. burial types. Um, these, you know, the Bell Beaker people, they called them. Mm. And some of the people were like, you know, archaeologists back in the 50s, they were like, oh, 
it was an invasion. They were killing everybody. And then they built this big, big monument on top of an old one mm. to show who's boss in the area, you know, like uh, kind of a, a simplistic narrative. And of course, everybody like, you know, more in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, archaeologists are like, oh, no, it was it couldn't have been something bloody like that. It had to have been, you know, peace, love and harmony and, uh, you know, postmodernist lovey dovey. And, and it, it was just the local indigenous population adopting new techniques. And we've come full circle because now it's like it's pretty obvious that it was really some sort of an invasion, uh, probably not a happy time, probably not uh peace, love, and harmony, but quite a bit of, um, you know, terrible things happening. Yeah. All the whys are coming up, but we're about to get to our first commercial break. We'll be right back, and we're going to, you know, we're going to knock out these other questions and uh, towards the wrap-up of the episode, because, see, this is bringing up all the whys, right? <laughs> the, the most interesting and speculative question, right? And, but it's, uh, it's, it's allowing you to ask a, a, a better why question. I yeah, think. yeah, it, it definitely is. So we're going to get there right after a quick commercial break. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm the science knight in the morning with my squire. <laughs> <laughs> faithful Always squire. Faithful, faithful squire. squire. Uh, oh, yes. Making sure that we we interpret things correctly here. So we asked the who question about Stonehenge. Who built Stonehenge? And 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 we're gonna have to quickly jump into the when the when question because that was I think that's the main question that's that's uh, conjured up after you ask the who because we we talked about three groups of people who contributed to the archaeological site that is modern Stonehenge. And they lived at kind of different times. There were hunter-gatherers, there were farmers, and there were maybe pastoralists who, who had horses. And that's over a span of several thousand years. So the earliest people who were around 8,000 BC were hunter-gatherers. And then around 3,000, 3,500 BC, up until about 2,500 BC, farmers from the Near East uh, who had migrated through Europe and had mixed a little bit with hunter-gatherers. And then finally, this oddball pastoralist group that came from the steppes of Asia, who may have been, um, you know, uh, were, were genetically different from the rest in, the, in modern Europe. So really, the story of Stonehenge is the story of modern Europe. All the, all the three main genetic groups that contributed to modern Europeans contributed something to the modern archaeological site of Stonehenge. Now, when and you so, talk about steppe people, are you talking about like um, Hun era, era? Like, no. So the yeah, the Huns were much later. And much so if, later. If, okay. If this so this like predates Beaker, the Huns. Yeah, by a lot. If, okay. if, the, if this Bell Beaker culture or the Yamnaya, as they're you know starting to be called, if they were, if it was like a, a serious invasion from the steppes, it was the first one. It was wow. the first step of invasion. And this is why I don't know why archaeologists have to kind of, you know, some of them are backpedaling and saying, no, maybe it wasn't an invasion. Ball. It's like, look, what does history tell you? How many times have people come from the, the steps of Eurasia and, and gone raided. into places like China and India and Europe and invaded and left, you know, uh, 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 a genetic signature and as well left, you know, burning buildings in their wake it's happened yeah. a lot it's okay. happened so many times it's nearly impossible to remember all the different groups you know scythians huns the Xiongnu, <laughs> and i forget all the rest um they they, they keep coming and, it, and it's like yeah it they do the same stops. thing every time 
Yeah, and like the most recent example of this, there was a Mongol invasion, a small one, in like the 19th century. What? Yes, like the last uh, one was really recently. That's crazy. Some of the herders got together and they were able to invade, um, and it's incredible. So wow. this might have been the first invasion, and they may have been the people who at least, if they didn't directly build the big megalith structure of the sandstone sarsens, the sarsen circle, and the trilithons, they didn't build that themselves. They probably inspired the building of it by a, an earlier group of people. Mm. So they definitely played a role. They were around when it was being built. So that I guess we kind of did answer the when a little bit, but we'll focus yeah. on this a little bit more. The when was Stonehenge built? It was built over thousands of years. Uh, the, the, the final product, if you would have gone to England around 2400 to 1900 BC, you would have saw a huge stone circle of those sandstone circles. And it wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been falling down on top of each other like they are now. It would have been a really good stone circle supported by uprights with a bunch of stones sitting on top in a circle. And inside that, there would have been a horseshoe of the trilithons, two stones holding up a third stone on top mm -hmm. and, and with a bunch of other small, less famous stones in the middle called blue stones, which we need to talk about. Okay. And so the, that was the final stage of Stonehenge. And then over the last, you know, what, 4,000 years, it's been falling apart. Hmm. It got started during the Neolithic, maybe 3,500 to 3,000 BC. Um, there were agriculturalists around and they were building weird little mounds and there's a huge long alleyway of digging called a, 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 a cursus just north of Stonehenge. It would have been the first kind of real obvious site in the area where they dug a like nearly kilometer long um, trench in the ground that nobody knows what it was for, of course. Um, and it would have been, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb because that chalk that they were digging into is white. Yeah. And so imagine yeah. like a grassy prairie turf, and then you dig a one kilometer long lane and then dump all the contents on one side. It's like a big white line. Yeah. And then just, you know, a few centuries after that, the first, what's called a, 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 a hinge, the, the name of hinges, these little kind of trenches that are circular, comes from Stonehenge, but there are a bunch of them. And it's just like an earthen mound with a trench around it. Yeah. And, you know, so this this is the first structure. And, and the rest of the, the stone monument is, it's important to know about this structure because the rest of the stone monument, its geometry is based on that original structure that's really freaking mm. old, you know, 5,000 yeah. years old or 5,500 years old. Um, and a bunch of small... Uh, holes. If you dig archaeologically, you'll find these little holes. In fact, they were found a long time ago, like in the 1600s by this guy, Aubrey, who <laughs> dug at Stonehenge. And he found these holes in a circle just inside the mound and trench. And mm. these are very important holes. Um, not many people know about them. They're just sitting out there. And you can't really see them because they're covered in grass. You only know that they're there archaeologically. There's stuff in those holes. There were bone fragments in those oh, old creation geez. burials, plus artifacts, little pieces of pottery, little pieces of stone tools. 
Mm. And they, all that stuff looks like it was crushed. So if you read a book in 2004, oh 2008, you would, have, you would have read. And they, they used to think that those were post holes and there would have been a wood <sighs> circle. But now the fact that they were crushed and the fact that they were all really irregular instead of perfectly circular, which is what you'd expect if there was a circular wow. post in there. Okay, so so you there were stones, big stones in those holes, and so the original Stonehenge were smaller stones in a circle inside of a trench, and inside of a little hill. What were you about to ask, me? dude? Okay, well, and crushed bone, right? Well, they were cremated, so cremation burials, and uh, and and then seemingly also crushed. Is there yeah. any kind of correlation? to the amount of chalk that's found in that area but so for the listeners that don't know chalk is is like like we said white it's very porous so it's like really light but it's made out of these like marine little tiny little marine yeah, organisms yeah. right yeah so it's if metal as hell right yeah if only we had a geologist or paleontologist who could come on the show and tell us what chalk is well I, luckily he taught me in his class so and, and i thought it was the coolest thing i didn't see chalk ever the same way again when you're when you're just drawing with little tiny little fragments of bone i think that's right. so awesome but and all, if only you know if we could you know when we get to the stuff about lunar and solar alignments you know if we had like an Astronomer <laughs> to come on the show, he could really give us some insights on that. That would be so cool. We need to we need to look some of them up, man. We we yeah. do we do. We'll have to find we'll have to find some. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. So to the to the chalk and to the so where were you getting with that? Yeah, so what I was getting with that is like, I, and that's going to get to my question in the last segment. And okay. um, it, uh, it, we're, but we're simmering, we're building up here. We're we're adding some ingredients. Good, good. Yeah, there, okay. there's definitely some uh, correlations here with with what what this thing is doing, right? And and what it's yeah, doing yeah, there, right? Yeah. So so we're so, building, we're building. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's flash forward. So around 3000 BC, just a earthen monument in a circle with a ditch, and then probably a stone circle with about 55 smaller and when i say small stones please make no mistake we're not talking about like a marble here we're talking about like a four foot tall uh stone that would have weighed tons wow so uh, yeah they, they, it's a it's a pretty it's and there are and the reason why we know that is because there are a bunch of stone circles like that that are in existence that aren't as famous as stonehenge but they're all over the place in england ireland and like even on the mainland coast of Brittany mm. in france and so it's a pretty good guess that there was a original stone circle there. And it turns out there are stones even that are still present at the site that are contenders for what was originally in that, uh, in, in those Aubrey holes. Mm. They're called the blue stones. They're still there. They're mm. not all accounted for. And th so basically they were moved probably from the Aubrey holes that are kind of far out on that earthen embankment and inside of the larger stone circle that they erected a couple of thousand years or a thousand years later, they took them out yeah. of the Aubrey holes and they moved them inside of the Sarsen stones. Right. And they're the blue stones that are there now. So the wow. final product about yeah, 2600, 2500 BC um, out to 1900 BC, because it looks like they did some they did some finagling. They moved things around. 
they they moved the blue stones inside of the sarsen circle and they made a smaller circle of blue stones and even a horseshoe shaped structure of blue stones hmm. with those stones that were probably originally in the aubrey holes hmm. incredible none wow. of this we knew um and if you read a book 20 uh, 2008 none of this is really known now here's where it gets crazy I love crazy. Got, this, is this is nuts. I love this. <laughs> so I started investigating these Aubrey holes and the blue stones. And, and this was one of these cases where, like, if you focus too much on the main cool thing about Stonehenge, which is the big sarsen stone, sandstone stone, stone circle, um, and the trilithons, which weigh tons and are humongous, and if you forget about the blue stones, they started focusing on the blue stones that are much smaller but still weigh tons and are incredible. Uh, w- using pe- petrography, which if we had a geologist around, he could tell us that's the kind of microstructure of the stone, the mineral grains using like electron microscopy. They were able to sample some of these stones and they were able to figure out exactly where those stones were quarried. And it's 100 miles away in Wales. Right. Yeah, 100, 150. <laughs> Is yeah, what? 150 miles away in Wales. Like the Sarsons, the big sandstone things, we think they probably came from just up the road in Marlborough. Like, <laughs> it's like 15, 20 miles away. So not that impressive, but they are super heavy. We'll get to maybe the how if we can. But wow. the blue stones came from much further away. And yeah. they, they, using really detailed geological and chemical analyses, they were able to track down exactly where they came from, the Priscelli Hills in Wales. And they discovered the quarry. Mm-hmm. We know where they found because they, they basically found these places where they were able to wriggle them out um, using stone, um, you know, uh, uh, what are those things that you stick in wood to split wood? Oh, God. A wood splitter? Um, we'll call it a wood splitter. A stone splitter in this case. Probably wooden mallets. And they were able to jack these things out of huge stones out of a quarry. 3,500 B.C. Whoa. They were able to do this. Now, this is even crazier. They found, basically, there's an old stone circle that's only got, like, four stones in in Wales. And they did a dig there, and they found that there was about 55 holes there originally. Hmm. And that was probably the... And, and the dates line up really good. And that was probably the original site of the Blue Stones that they moved to Stonehenge um, and that's how they got there. Wow. And that's, that's bananas. They found an empty stone circle in Wales you, by digging an empty one. Wow. An empty one. And they, and, and some of the, some of the, uh, like the holes, even like you, you can use a jigsaw puzzle kind of thing and go, yeah, that one would have probably fit there. The dates line up. They got some good dates using brand new techniques, uh, luminescent soil, uh, dating, um, which is kind of hot off the presses, and they've pretty much, uh, if if not the stone circle that was the, so originally Stonehenge, the blue stones were probably in Wales. They may have actually found the the empty circle where it was, and then they moved it. And remember, these people had boats because they brought cows to England. And if you can bring a cow to England, you can probably maybe move a, a small, you know, three foot, four foot tall rock from Wales around the coast and up a river to Salisbury Plain. Right. And if you couldn't do that, it's still, it's not that big of a deal. You had cows, you could use oxen and a sledge to move them 150 miles. 
Yeah, that's just, just float those really, things, though. Use buoyancy right. and, and drag them behind yeah, your boat. Yeah. boat. Yeah, somebody did some half-assed experiment using a boat, and they weren't able to get far, and it fell into the water. But it's still like, you know, a half-assed uh, 21st century university professor trying to move a stone is oh. different than an expert, you yeah. know, ocean from, voyager. From, from the time, Africa. yeah. They probably could handle it. Uh, they should have tried the same experiment using a cow, and they would have probably failed. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, and they definitely moved cows. And then they moved horses. And this thing, you, I don't see much of this, and, and they're not talking about this much. But if those if those Bell Beaker people got there 2600 BC, 2500 BC, they undoubtedly would have brought their horses with them, especially if they were doing some conquering. Mm-hmm. And so it could be that we should not be talking about Stonehenge as being a completely man uh, movement type monument, like you know, undoubtedly the Easter Island sort of thing was like that. There was no no, no livestock there, so people had to move those stones. But it could be that the big sarsen stones, the big sandstone blocks that weigh multiple tons, could have had horsepower to mm. move them which yeah. I think changes the game. Mm-hmm. I don't think to move uh, something like that using horses only 15 miles, 20 miles, I think we shouldn't be thinking aliens anymore because right. they probably, first yeah. of all, they definitely had oxen and oxen aren't as good as horses, but they're pretty good at moving stuff. And if not oxen, they might have had horses to do it, yeah. in which case it becomes a lot more explicable how they were doing the moving. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's brilliant. And, you know, people at that time had to be clever. Like, they didn't have all the distractions that we have now, you know. <laughs> they were perfectionists. They weren't on Twitter yeah. Yeah. or YouTube or, or yeah. playing video games. They were honing their right. skills, and they yeah. were basically yeah. physicists 24-7, yeah. like, yeah, they, you know. Yeah. I, think, I think something that really goes to that point is the way that those big the big trilithons and the stone circles sarsens were built mm. they had little the probably the most remarkable things about them is that they had little pegs and holes right where they interlocked yeah that were and it's like woodwork so some somebody was like look we can do this we'll just do it just like we would with wood right it's going to be harder but we're going to turn these big rocks and we're going to make a ball and socket joint just like we would if we were joining wood together. <laughs> wow. And everybody probably looked at that person and was like, you're nuts. It doesn't work. And he was like, look, if we've got 400 people doing this round the clock and they're right. made to do it. Which they do. Yeah. Because we've got, you know, we've got a, a, a skit to their head. They'll do it <laughs> and it can work. Right. Right. So, so I'm pretty sure that's probably, yeah, they, the, like the guy who designed Stonehenge probably never took a wooden mallet to a rock in his life. Right. Right. Yeah. His or her life. But the people, so, and then they were like, look, you guys uh, figure out how to actually do the sculpting of the rock. I'm not going to have any part of that. I'm going to sit here on my mound and eat pig guts all day. The rest of you are going to figure out how to smooth that rock out. Um, Anyway. So, so the, the how questions are becoming super, super um, ordinary now. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. could have been boats. Uh, there's a lot of really cool experimental archaeology that they do where they're like they take a rock the size of a bluestone. They use only tools and materials that the people of the time could have had, you know, ropes and, um, you know, antler 
axes and wooden mallets. They make a wooden sledge and they, they got like 40 or 50 uh, high schoolers to see if they could move that thing. And they were able to do it pretty well. Yeah. And so, um, you know, scale that up and you could have brought, and especially then use horses instead of people and mm -hmm. easy. You could have, you could have just dragged those big rocks um, probably even farther if you wanted to. Right. So yeah. the how questions are becoming are are, are really uh, kind of getting ordinary now. So we've answered how, we've answered where, when, yeah, uh, the what we've kind of got to like what are the rocks? Right. This, uh, we got uh, into a little of that. The who we've really got. We got uh, how much time we got before the next uh, break? We're, we we got to get to a break. But I think okay. after the break, Perfect. we know which Perfect. question we're going to be getting to. Yeah. And so go. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, let, let's keep it right here. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back with more Science Nights in the morning. All right, everybody. We are back. What an awesome episode already. We have, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head with all these mysteries of Stonehenge and how, you know, very uh, doable it is to um, to get these things up and about. We've answered all the questions except for a very important one and that is the why question and that's where we get to have a little bit of fun right um right. We, we, and, and the, any kind of why question is always going to depend on your own independent <laughs> your individual creativity and uh your own uh boldness to go out into the unknown right so mm -hmm. uh, i do want to ask you about this because um I did. Uh, I, I, I actually looked this up yesterday on a completely different thing, but it does relate to Stonehenge, actually. So in the early 20th century, there's an archaeologist named Alfred Watkins who believed that ancient monuments like Stonehenge were aligned along something called a ley line. And what a, a ley line is, is uh, basically like a straight, it's a connection between a a whole bunch of different ancient sites and it is yeah. straight up pseudoscience it's like not it's not accepted by the mainstream archaeology world because it's not something you can really measure right but i it really helps me kind of try to figure out what the why is in this instance because that mm -hmm. is something you can't measure like it's not I mean, it, it doesn't have well, it to is, make sense it, 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 you know that's not as pseudoscientific as you say because you could hypothesize that that Stonehenge belonged to a larger kind of ritual landscape. Right. And maybe there yeah. maybe there are maybe they built Stonehenge and other sites nearby um, with the other sites in mind, and that's testable. Yeah. Well, it, and in fact, well, it looks like that is the case. That like Durrington Walls is nearby, and the Woodhenge at Durrington Walls is has a solstice alignment, mm. like Stonehenge mm -hmm. does. Where it looks like the winter solstice, you know, you look down Woodhenge on the winter solstice and the sun rises from its little aperture. Mm -hmm. And it's the opposite Stonehenge. Uh, the sun sets through the aperture on the winter solstice at Stonehenge. So you can kind of imagine a bunch of druids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, starting at Woodhenge in the morning, getting super hammered and feasting all day and doing all kinds of, you know, connubial and bacchanalian stuff and then walking down to the avon river and you know and Aver, uh, there's an Averbury or Avebury circle uh of stones yeah. 
uh, yeah, st- it's like a stone of, circle just outside yeah, of stone there, there are there are little alignments like that now just to say it to say it and say it with no evidence and going oh i think they're aligned with other yeah. you know with then i think that's like okay anybody could say that about anything right but right it is it is actually testable you know incredibly there's a, a southwestern archaeologist who pointed out that some of the most remarkable sites in the southwest all fall on the same exact meridian of longitude yeah the Con- yeah. chaco canyon um the casas grandes site in mexico um and several others are yeah. like within a hair of the same meridian of longitude and they're all uh they're, they're consecutive right they weren't yeah. all built at the same time, so right. they were like following uh, following the line, and so, they're hundreds of miles away. Right, it's exactly. Like, it, it's it's and that that pattern is not just it could be chance. There's probably some chance involved, but he's he's probably onto something. It's it's pretty crazy. And, and that's the, you know that is something. So if there's a solar flare today that knocked out all the electricity, and say we like you know I've used this with you before, but yeah, like yeah. you know. There's no don't tell me identifier the national, of, that, yeah. uh, of, right. of Wi-Fi like or, or any kind of yeah, like, yeah. we lose so much technology. And so and, and it's just speculation. I'm not yeah. saying it is, but I'm just saying um, there could be some kind of ancient lost technology or maybe like, you know, through in any kind of spiritual ritual. I don't know what you call it. I, I'm not sure, but there could be something that can make more sense of this than just coincidence, right? Like, so um, what kind of technology is that? I don't know. We probably forgot about it, and we're comparing it to our technology now. So how are we ever going to be able to pinpoint that if we're not even working on the same playing field, you know, technology-wise? So I I think it's really cool to think about ley lines and think about the spiritual energy that kind of brings the world together. And and, may, and maybe these are hints. Maybe these are lessons, right? From our our ancient our ancestors, you know. Mm. And um, and and it's up to us to be the scientists out there and put a lot of effort and energy into solving some of these mysteries because that connects us a little bit better with our ancient world. Mm. Yeah, I think putting yourself putting yourself in the shoes of those people in those days. Probably, and you know, archaeology and even anth- especially anthropology has has some things to bear here, because you know there is something to be said for understanding. You know, we've gone away from the idea that <clears throat> human civilizations are on this scale. You know, right. that hunter gatherers are primitive, and that they were replaced by agriculturalists, and the agriculturalists become you know. Uh, city states and then city states become empires and it's like this progression of humanity that's all kind of um antiquated but there is really something to be said for you know studying what's left of modern hunter hunter gatherers to Mm -hmm. try to get into the mindset of the hunter gatherers that would have been there at stonehenge before it was built Mm -hmm. and if there's anybody making stone big megalith monuments anywhere in the world now they might have something to be able to tell us about what was in the mindset of the people who built Stonehenge. And, and it turns out there are, there is such a thing. There's a culture in Madagascar wow. that builds wow. big stone monuments. And um, the, the, the guy who, who's really blown the lid off of all this archeology span that's going on 
in um, in in Stonehenge right now, and I better I better look up his name instead of just saying that and give him credit for everything I've said on this episode. He's got one of these names that's like um, so common and ordinary that it's hard to remember. Oh yeah, yeah. Any any kind of phone book you can look him up. Yeah, but uh, if you if you just Google Stonehenge archaeology, she'll get him. Mike Parker Pearson. He oh. did he did stuff. He did digs and archaeology in Madagascar and met some of these people. And he, he's like, it's so brilliant. It's like, what did you guys do this for? And they're like, oh, the stones are our ancestors. Mm. Boom, boom. And it, it 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 matches up perfectly. Yeah, you know, cremation burials crushed by blue stones. So you bury your loved ones, and then you erect the. And we still do it. We do. We still do it. We do it. Yeah, gravestones, baby. Yeah. Graves, we're still doing it. And it's, wow. That's incredible. And it's like, why didn't we ever just slap a face and go, wait, we do this. <laughs> right. We erect stone monuments over dead people. <laughs> we still do it. We put their name on it because we love them. We want to remember them. Yeah. And it's, and it's, of course, this is like a Scooby-Doo ending that nobody who, who wants Stonehenge to be built by aliens will ever accept or want. But it's so ordinary, yeah. and it makes so much sense. It's got to be true. That's yeah. what it was. That's what it was. That's brilliant, man. That is brilliant. And uh, just had a great time on this episode. Really kind of opened my eyes to uh, reading and interpreting things in a different way, you know, because it's so easy to jump to conclusions and say, yep, this is it. But uh, to actually analyze it and use technology in a way to where we're learning and growing from each other's mistakes, right? Yeah. And we're not judging each other for it. You know, uh, that that's what's uh, the beauty when science can come together with uh, that speculation and, and, and actually just, yeah. take those into consideration. Yeah. And I think it's just one of these stories that I think where science can really toot its own horn. It's like, okay, you guys like this stuff. You like mystery. You like, you like this. Here we go. <laughs> we solved almost everything. Yep. And it's awesome. And it's awesome. I don't think it diminishes the mystery at all. No, to no. To me, it's, it's like, like I wasn't interested in Stonehenge at all when it was just, oh, we don't know who built it. Yeah. Wow. When it was those kind of, like, I, I could care less. It was like, you know, it's really neat. But like all of this stuff that they found in the last five years has completely uh, mesmerized me and engrossed me and has made me like it's it's it really blows your imagination away. It makes you wonder what they would have looked like and like how they did it. All that stuff. It, it's remarkable. All of that has made me excited. All the science has made me excited about Stonehenge. Yeah. The, the, yeah. the old time life book stuff about it was always boring to me. This stuff. Is exciting and it's and it's yeah. and again i want to make i'm tooting science's horn here the wiccan festival goers would have never given you this stuff <laughs> ever in yeah. a million years yeah and it is a testament to the uh, human spirit and the will of humans to respect their what they're doing you know like <laughs> hey we got this look at oh, this man. You know, but anyway. All right. That's another episode of Science Night in the Morning. And uh, we'll see you next week with another great episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. 
at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.